This is the Life Therapy with Zeta podcast. I'm Zeta. Hello and welcome to episode seven of Conversations with Ourselves. Today I'm in conversation with Francisca Golenhofen. She is a consultant researcher and recent author of the book, Mastering Disruption and Innovation in Product Management, published 2018. Previously, Francisco worked in the inaugural FIFA Female Leadership Program. She is now at Siemens, where she works with corporate business units to startups in helping them move initial ideas to building tangible products and services. With a systemic impact and systems thinking perspective, she integrates and connects insights from human-centered design approaches to more technical concepts such as modularization and platforms. She holds an MSc in Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship from the London School of Economics, has published with Oxford University Press, and is an advocate for the work done by One Young World and the Global Shapers, a World Economic Forum. Growing up in Hawaii and Munich, she has lived and worked in the USA, Canada, Germany, South Africa, the Netherlands, and most recently, the United Kingdom. It was so refreshing to have this conversation with the leading light of the future and to hear her views and understanding of systemic awareness and how it is a part of a conscious approach to healthcare and education. The systemic perspective relates to a rising awareness of the forces at play that have been organizing life since the beginning of time. Forces that are deeply interwoven into the fabric of all human systems. What does that mean? It means looking at the world and understanding it as a moving phenomenon. So today, I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Francisca as much as I enjoyed having it. Thank you for listening. Francisca Golenhofen. <laughs> Francisca Golenhofen. Fantastic. Beautiful name. Welcome, Francisca. Lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor to be here with you on this podcast today. Well, I'm really excited because I don't often get to meet scientists. I know that you are uh, studying social science. You're doing an MSc, correct? I'm doing an MSc in social innovation entrepreneurship. That's correct. Social innovation and entrepreneurship. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means? Because I don't really know. Of course. Uh, so I'm at the London School of Economics right now in the management department. And as you said, it is an MSc. And pretty much the idea is to use business to create social change. Is it a bit like conscious capitalism? Very good. Yeah, it is literally conscious capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all in favour of that. So tell me more about conscious capitalism or, you know, how you're planning to use mm. your training or studies to engage in a conscious way. Yeah, for me, the programme is very intriguing because you have many avenues that you can take. So um, every single individual in the course is taking a very different route afterwards. For me personally, I'm highly interested in healthcare and education as sectors. And uh, so that's where I see myself as the strongest and also very passionate about bringing in change. So I'm curious, healthcare and education, is that how we educate people about healthcare? 
Or can you kind of expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, uh, well, I would say that you can actually separate them very much. So changing healthcare is one topic. And then the other one is literally also thinking about how can education be shaped in the future to become more valuable to us. Wow. Ooh. Yeah, big topics. Big topics, <laughs> mind-expanding, just the thoughts of it. So how, how are you drawn to these particular topics? Because I often find that uh, when people are drawn to something, there's a personal interest which is then expanded out further into their reach into the world. Yeah, I think the education comes from me just being highly intellectually curious, actually. And I love, uh, well, the combination for both is helping people. And I think that teaching is a lot about helping people and healthcare, of course, is as well. And just from my upbringing and my personal story and where I've lived in the past, I think that's really a part that's just shaping me into the person who I am. Aha. Uh-huh. So where are you from? <laughs> well, I am German. Right. I have German parents. And uh, then I lived in the USA for quite some years in my childhood, which really shaped me, I think. And uh, then spent my bachelor degree in Amsterdam studying and am now here in London. Okay, so uh, is it a third generation kid, they call you, someone who's been educated and raised in an environment that outside of the country of their origin of birth or something? I mean, going from Germany to America is... uh, well, it's a historical move people have been making making for years. A lot of the foundation principles of America are very strongly influenced by Germany. So mm-hmm. I would imagine there's some symbiosis in the experience. But what in particular did you find you enjoyed or did not enjoy about growing up in the States? Mm-hmm. Well, I think... Um Growing up on in Maui, Hawaii is, of course, something very different oh, that's than... that's <laughs> really American, isn't it? I know. So I guess I do have to point that out. I can't really speak for the U.S. in itself. But for me, it was a very a big gift, I guess, um, from my childhood to spend it there, just because the mindset, the values are so open and giving and about sharing and really trying to bring out the best in also a child, but also the people that live there. Yeah, and uh, I do think that not well. The German system is not always focused on increasing maybe wealth and well, wealth in the sense of health, health and well-being in that sense, but uh, a little bit more stringent, let's say, in how kids are brought up. Yeah. Well, it's quite interesting because now that you say it's Maui, I mean, it's quite a contrasting culture to Mm. German culture. It's almost like um, you would say one is the yin and one is the yang, Mm -hmm. in essence. One is very masculine in its approach and reasoned and practical and logical, and one is very much sort of in the feminine realm of connection through nature and understanding through nature. So that must be very... Interesting indeed. And you say you enjoyed it, but what was the thing about it that touched you most or left a lasting impact? That's a beautiful question. Um, I think the search for harmony and unity with your surroundings and with yourself and the connections with the people around you uh, is really something that stuck from or stuck with me from the Maui time. And I think it's the aloha spirit and that way of living is just a very, very beautiful thing 
to try to bring with you to wherever you live. And it's quite fascinating, I think, that this whole... I mean, the islands are so small. There's only eight little islands in the middle of the ocean um, that this aloha word has been carried to Europe in so many ways. I mean, all of us know it now. And uh, All of us, sorry, say that. I think everyone knows the word aloha here now. I've heard it, but I don't really know what it means. <laughs> so I'm curious when you say aloha spirit, what does it... Because I could kind of make up a story in my mind about Hawaii Five-0 and some references from when I was a child, but... That might not be really... So can you give us a clearer sense of aloha spirit or what that means? Alo pretty much means sharing and being in the present in uh, Hawaiian. And the aloha means to be joyous and stands for affection. And then the ha means life, energy, life, breath. And I think that the whole mentality of it is, and especially living there, that's what the sense of it is, that just in everything that you do and all the interactions that you have, that you always search for this aspect of joyfully sharing life. And I think it's just a beautiful concept um, to keep within yourself and also carry around. It is. And it's so deeply respectful. It dignifies humanity in, in a sense, which I find really touching. Mm-hmm. I can see many similarities in a way to, even though I grew up in England, I belong to the culture of the Caribbean and Africa, and that's very much about honouring nature and spirit and the joy of life, hence dancing mm. and singing to express a full range of emotions and life experiences. Yeah, and I think we touched upon this earlier once in our conversation, just the importance of nature, I guess, yeah. as well, and how connected it is to just you as a being in that sphere and I think that especially with now the internet and the whole digitalization process it's easy sometimes to lose that focus yeah well it's quite interesting because I think you're from that generation that's the digital world has always been there whereas mm-hmm. my for my generation it came in probably about a third of the way through our lives and you know <laughs> It's interesting to see the difference in how it, we relate to it. So what what do you think your relationship with the digital world in terms of this aloha spirit is? Wow, that's a complex question. <laughs> Just take the part that, <laughs> that resonates with you and share that. Mm. I think um, once you've deeply experienced the sense of aloha, yeah. and I'm just very honored to have lived in it for such a long time, You just know what it feels like. And I think that you always search for it and nothing can take that away from you. So even if there might be a cell phone and of course we all have stressful lives and we all have things to do and we need technology to get them done with, there will always be that thing within you that pulls you back to just take time off. So on the weekends, sometimes just take the phone and just, I don't look at it. Yeah, that's Steve. That sounds very appealing to me. <laughs> I can it's easy. Identify. Just do it. <laughs> yeah, of course. I can't actually imagine not doing it. It would be rather strange to. And in Sweden, they say uh, it's a. They call it an electronic leash, mm. and you must unclip it and mm. separate so that you can kind of really come back into resonance with your self. And it's interesting because. 
even in the technology courses that I'm taking at university now, they truly invite you to always reflect on this aspect of, do you want to design a product now that would actually make you as a user always want to be on it? Or do you want to give them options to just turn it off? So for um, Google Maps, for example, yeah, you know, you have that button of, I don't want you to know where I am right now. Right. So the importance actually is that you always give options, I guess. I agree. <laughs> no, that, that's very interesting because I do agree, but it brings up so many other things at the same time, which is that I was in a supermarket the other day. I don't often go to supermarkets as much as I can. I shop local. I buy from the Lebanese guy at the corner. And if I want something, I ask him to bring it in and buy it. So I don't have to spend money on gas and engaging in that way. Oops. And um, anyway, I happened to be in a supermarket and I found it quite disturbing because there was so much choice. Mm-hmm. But there was nothing that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Not, none of it to me seemed worthy or good enough to actually put in my body or to actually engage with taking the plastic off it when I got home to fill my bin. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, wow, so much choice and nothing. So it's wonderful, this idea of having a choice. But as you observe, we've all done it there's a choice and because we have a choice we feel compelled to take it and say yes and engage with it even if we don't actually want it so it is Mm. an interesting idea giving people a choice and option and whether people will take it because I'm wondering now do I still have that google maps thing on I'm sure I turned it off but I seem to get around using it all the time and you touch on a really interesting point there because giving too much choice also based on research, doesn't work because then you just don't know what to do. So more than six is definitely not interesting. Well, more than three, I just passed out. Same, just give me the one best thing and the rest I don't want to see. (laughs) Poor, poor pineapple and banana, I'm good. (laughs) But with ice creams, you know, you do want to have that whole variety sometimes. I make my own ice cream. Ah, Oh, that's the best word. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So... We've got this sense of the aloha spirit and the joyfulness of life. And it brings us back to sort of my earlier question of how these experiences shaped what you're going into as you go out into the world to make your contribution to life through healthcare and education and this incredible course that you're doing now here. How do you see that unfolding? I think it's um, an exciting journey for sure. And I'm very much interested in the process itself, just as much as the end goal. So for me, it always feels like I take a little step and then it opens new doors. And then I'm super excited to check out these doors. And then I usually choose the option, which in that moment sounds the most interesting and fulfilling in the long term. So I think as long as we have like a long term vision, you know, and picture of where you want to go, then... uh, Living in the moment is one of those beautiful things that Aloha kind of teaches us, Mm. which kind of goes against the idea of that you need to have everything figured out and planned. But, I mean, that is also hard to do in these times, to have it all figured out. So um, I think this iterative development process is very exciting. It is exciting. And what I'm really curious to know now, Mm. which comes back to, in my mind, you're a scientist. 
Mm. which is in some ways at the other end of the spectrum where I, that I inhabit. And one of the things I've always been curious to ask a scientist in, in the process of making a decision when there are a range of choices or possibilities or options that are coming at you thick and fast as they do in life is how do you choose? What is your process, would you say? Is it a toss of the dice? Is it a rational, reasoned process of weighing up the pros and cons? Or is it an embodied felt experience? So I'll give you the social scientist perspective here. Fantastic, (laughs) thank you. I think it does just, um, for me personally, it does matter uh, what kind of decision is in front of you. There are many different kind of decisions For the big life decisions, I do definitely think that my gut feeling is more important to me than for little decisions. So I would say that for the big decisions of where am I going, you know, everything needs to be in line. And that also goes back to this idea of trying to combine this just aloha way of living with um, the more rational German mind, I would say. So you set a goal and then you really think, though, does that actually matter? and fit to what I want to do. I have to reflect on how I make smaller decisions, I have to be honest. (laughs) I think they're quite rational and just how can I get what I need to get done in a very effective manner and not influence others in a bad or negative way around me. How do you do it? I'm very interested now in how you do it. Well, it's changed over the years, actually. Uh, when I was younger, sometimes I would do it by throw of the dice, but I would also kind of, the dice would agree with me. So I'd already kind of predetermined what the outcome was. I was just looking for an external reinsurance. And as I've gotten older and more confident and secure and trusting my decision-making process, it's a felt thing. And I can tell by cues within my body or sensations what is right and good and will produce a good outcome. Mm. And what is scary, that's definitely got to be an option. If it frightens me, that's probably the door I've got to push open. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a felt thing. But it's, it's kind of like the people who become an overnight success they spent 10 years working on Mm -hmm. it. So there would have been an internal processing going on that I was, my subconscious was working through and the seemingly rational answer that just pops up. Mm. What you say is so true. I think fear is such a powerful emotion and very telling as well. Yeah, It's definitely not the case that when you're scared of something that you shouldn't do it. I have had the most amazing stories of my life, both professionally and personally happen to me when I just say, hey, I'm so scared of this, but I somehow know in my gut, right? And in my head as well, that this is the right way. So let's just do it. Right. And I do believe that we all have this intrinsic power to do whatever we want to do. I believe so too, but I don't think we all have the confidence to follow through. It's quite a luxury, I think, these days uh, when we come across people who do. Mm. And um, and it reminds me actually of a conversation we had when we met, which was about women in business, women in the sciences. Uh, where are these places that we find our way through to say, I have a goal of vision, I want to go there. This is my internal drive. 
am I guided by the external forces that say, oh, no, you're a girl, you can't, or, you know, mm. it's, um, it's a very fine line. And I think it goes back to why I'm so curious about people's past, because it's actually the stories that they're holding that make it possible. Mm. So you're not being afraid of your fear, but a willingness to embrace it is grounded. It tells me it's grounded in something very strong and secure that you know is supporting you. Mm. You have some kind of resource that says, if I jump, it's going to be fine. The worst that's going to happen is I'll land on both my feet. Mm. I think that resilience is one of the most important skills one can have these days. Yeah. Just bouncing back from failure. Yeah. And also to see actually, um, I mean, in innovation management and in all the fields, literally what you learn is that failures must be your best friend. Because if you want to do anything that is interesting in any way or different, then you just have to embrace that moment of it won't work out. And from that you learn and you move on. Yes, that's one of the biggest things I think we can all learn. <laughs> that we just have to tell each other as well, keep as friends and as family yeah. that it's okay. Sometimes when it sounds really crazy, that's exactly the moment you should go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree yeah. about innovation. Not much... My mother used to put it as not much is going to happen on the sofa. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the beautiful thing, I think, about social support systems is literally they are there and they will always be there. And so why should you always be afraid? Yeah, I don't think there's too much to be afraid of. These are, It's interesting because the truth of the matter is as human beings, we are born with two fears, loud noises and falling. Every other fear is learned, which means you can unlearn it or disregard it. Mm. So it's kind of useful to be mindful of that. There was some book that was going on the rounds on LinkedIn the other day about, oh, fear, you've got to read this book. I was like, how many pages can it be? It's only two (laughs) sentences. No, there's so many books on that. (laughs) No worries. And it's like, you know what? The crazy thing is, you keep reading them thinking that they'll help you get over your fear, but mm. part of the reading them is that you're still stuck in your fear. To get past fear, you've got to put the book down and go do the thing that you're mm-hmm. afraid of or think you're afraid of because it's not real. So or what, do a power pose. Or do what? Do you know the power pose? Which one? You mean like warrior pose? No, the, this one where you have your arms in the back and then you just uh, make your chest really wide. Oh, yeah. Like you I sit up. You don't crunch together. And pretty much, I think from Harvard Business School, they've done research on that. It really actually does change the your level, or at least, yeah, your level of courage. Well, that's interesting because core courage comes from the heart, and it's mm-hmm. actually with your heart out to the world saying, it's okay, bring it. I yeah, bring it on, it. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I thought it was a yoga pose, but it kind of is and isn't. It's wonderful as well. I see how things become rebranded or recycled Mm. ideas and the the language gets uh, fine-tuned kind of down the generations. It becomes refined. I heard something about bandwidth and I was like, that's such a beautiful way to describe this particular thing. I don't know what they were describing, but it sounded good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you think are the greatest challenges for your generation? Because technically you're a millennial, right? What a fancy word for (laughs) it. I know, it's big, it's got lots of letters. (laughs) What are the biggest challenges? That's a fantastic question. I think one of them is literally how to deal with technology. 
I think it does bring a lot of different um, aspects in many, many different ways to life. And I think the second one is how to deal with a lot of choice. Um, one choice. With choice. Yes. If I look at my grandparents who had to live in, you know, German Second World War times, mm. wow, what kind of decisions were going through their head? Uh, what were their thoughts? What were they thinking of? It's so different than the choices and thoughts that I have now. It doesn't mean that just because everything is easier well, and safer and uh, we have more food, of course, and we don't have a war going on, that it makes everything so easy. Not at, Not all. at all. <laughs> I, I think quite the contrary, actually, in a lot of ways, because I think for previous generations, survival was top of their list. And as we've made life easier and survival is relatively straightforward for a large percentage of the people on this planet. What do we do with all the time left? It's quite interesting that I think now we work 18 hours more per week than primitive man. Mm. Which is like, how on earth did that happen? Because the washing machine is doing stuff, the dishwasher is doing the other part of the stuff. I know I've got a robot vacuum. That that That's hours already mm. gone so I think it's actually that we're moving into this other kind of evolution of how to be it's a very the future of work is such an interesting field and yeah. also um, I had a discussion with a professor last week and he said uh, that it's not even clear if the computer made us more productive which I found highly interesting because mm. I always thought of course we're more productive we have a computer you know we can do so many more things you don't have to do the post uh, as much. You can just write an email. But apparently, after yeah, a gigantic research project, it's not even clear. <laughs> well, I can, I can see that because when I am about to reach for it, I can think of all the things that I used to do that I don't do because that's easy to reach for. And mm. then I go, okay, no, let's go do those things because... It's, a, it, it's, it's having that contact, actually, which starts to become more difficult. It's out of contact that real ideas come. You can get an idea from something that you see on the internet, another how-to tip on how mm. to live more robustly, make more money, be more resilient. But personally, I find that they don't have as much contact as when I sit and actually talk with somebody about real lived experiences mm. and you're in an exchange of feelings and emotions and conversations in real time about how then ideas emerge that are more realistic in the context. Mm. I mean, the other thing is, for me, the way I see it is everything that exists starts as a thought, as an imagination. So some people in my generation or a bit before were like, oh, dude, I just want this life to be easy. I just want a taxi to come when I press a button. When I slide this, I want to find a girl to go out on a date with. I want to be able to read my newspaper here, et cetera, et cetera. And these were, you know, similar to the bigger things that we want to create in the future for ideas that we have. And then we go about as humans as ways to create them, to resolve this, having not considered what it would unresolve somewhere else. And now, interestingly, we're having to ask the question of, oh, how much of this? Hmm. I think you touch on a very fundamental point because the how-to doesn't really get you to the why. And what we really try to understand, right, is the underlying mechanisms 
of what's happening. And if you only have these how-tos, then you don't really always get to what you should be doing in a certain situation. Because all you really need to know is the concepts that kind of guide your behavior in different right. moments. And I think that's just one more thing about this Aloha thing is that in essence, or any religion actually, what they kind of teach you is, uh, or even your podcast, if you have emotional, conver- like not emotional conversations, <laughs> but um, meaningful conversations, uh, what you're trying to get at is this underlying why of why someone does something the way they do. Yeah. And not just the how. And that's what intrigues me is, wow, how do you do that? Not just how do you do that, Mm -hmm. like step one, step two, but I'm really engaged. You know what it is? You can make a human being. You can go on Amazon and you can buy all the ingredients necessary to make a human being. And you can buy all of those ingredients, literally, it's about, did the maths, it's about 15 pounds and 95 pence. But you can't make a human being because the thing that really makes a human being human is soul, spirit, life Mm. force. And that's the best of people that I am interested because it's so ephemeral. It's so intangible, but we all have it. And it's different for everyone. And sometimes our soul, and I don't mean this in any spiritual woo-woo context, I mean the bit that makes us human, Mm. that bit that you can't buy on Amazon. That fascinates me. And it fascinates me how certain things have landed with a person. Mm. Because you could have gone to Maui and been drawn by the sea and the sky people. Mm. I think, well, to me, there's so many different, you know, things popping into my head when you hear you talk all are beautiful. Um, But you're really touching upon the tacit knowledge aspect, right? Like this part of people that is not just explicitly seen from... You can't see it. Yeah. It's the unknown and the unknowable aspect. You have to unlock it. Vast. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely vast. And I find that... Phenomenal. It's funny because I never told you this, but I literally just uh, did half a year of research on that part. Did you? Yeah. Of, um, there's also a Nonaka, so in um, Japanese yeah. scientist um, in management, and pretty much he found a way of how you can unlock this tacit knowledge within organizations. Because of course, in organizations as well, when you have this vast levels of knowledge that are not being explicitly used, yeah. it's kind of a loss of resources, right? So yeah. he was very interested in how can you tap into that and then unleash it. Ooh, mm-hmm. now you need <laughs> chills because, you know, from my work, the, uh, we call it the knowing field. Mm-hmm. And in my work, whether I'm working one-to-one or with a team, we're looking for the information that is not spoken but is felt and known by the team or the organization. Mm-hmm. And it's that, those gems that when you touch it, and you have to touch it with so much respect because you can't actually touch it, but when you are given the privilege of knowing this hidden realm, mm. it allows you to support it in its own rebalancing and healing. So... Enough of me. I want to hear about how this uh, 
was it a Japanese professor that you said? Nonaka, yeah. Nonaki. Nonaka, yeah. It's um, actually the opposite of the scientific approach, right? Where you have a hypothesis and you test it and you have a clear objective and you think you know the best answer. The opposite is if you say there's so many unknowns and so much unclear circumstances and you want to really touch into like the deeper layers of something mm. and through that on earth maybe many possibilities and answers and one of them is to what you were saying go into this empathy state and just really drill down and um it's the opposite of just doing a big study with many people right but saying i'm going to take the time to really look at one individual anthropology psychology sociology those um Uh, do it a lot and um, yeah trying to drill down and really understand what's going on at the deeper levels in order to then find out from those insights how to move on and develop new insights so I'm curious when you say uh, drill down mm-hmm. is there a process of <laughs> yeah there is a process actually okay. there's many processes okay and it probably depends Uh, in what field you are, which one you use. But for example, design thinking design thinking is a very well-known approach right now in this field. And um, uh, yeah, the empathy phase pretty much, there's tools, frameworks, methods, or jobs to be done theory. So yeah, oh my <laughs> it is all out there. Now you've made all of my <laughs> brain almost explode with the excitement of wanting to understand more because it's, It sounds like we're kind of in similar realms in this regard, but you're coming from it within the scientific realm, mm. whereas um, I've come up engaged with it through the scientific realm, through the gestalt realm, through the systemic realm, through then my own realms that I was born into and have access to, into the M. Mm. I think deep down they're all linked. Yes, of course they are. As, they, as everything is. Well, <laughs> I mean, thought is. Mm. We, we, you know, we don't really fully grasp how thought moves mm. and how other people's thoughts have the power to impact us or not. We potentially have that choice. Oh, goodness. For the first time, I'm almost kind of like, I haven't got much to say for a minute. <laughs> But that's, that is interesting because it goes back to something that you said earlier about wanting to help and being drawn to this field of study and where it will be uh, facilitate you to go further in life in, in terms of helping. And the role of the helper is such an interesting one because it's in many ways such a virtue but like with anything there are two sides and if not also the third infinite side of a coin that um, the helper also has to be tuned to not just its virtue but its vice why does it want to help what is it seeking to do through its help what is it seeking to resolve now does this come up in your studies and your research at all part played by the helper? That's a beautiful question. Yes, we have in many different facets. But for example, I'm flying to South Africa next week 
to do research on how to facilitate more open communication in Cape Town, in the townships there. We had so many trainings prior to being able to fly there now with our program, mm -hmm. just on the importance of not putting your values and your systems on someone else because mm -hmm. you think that you can help them. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, mostly you can't. It, right? it it's, yeah. it's just uh, the truth is that, no, that it isn't really about you going anywhere and helping them at all. It's actually more you maybe helping yourself in that process of being somewhere. Um, so for me, I think a big part, at least in the social entrepreneurial space, is actually creating opportunities and settings and environments where other people can realize more about themselves mm. or creating just spaces and communities or literally products that create such a space. Mm. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah, so it's a very... Um, Of course, of how you see it and what you make of it, but a very holistic way of thinking yeah. of it. And it's not like um, a doctor, you know, has the real power of, well, you're sick and uh, you're in pain and I can take away that pain from you. Mm -hmm. But in the pr more preventative stages, of course, that's different, right? So what can we do? We can create structural changes. We can redesign cities. We can create more spaces that just help us not even get sick in the first place. And I think that social entrepreneurship usually, at least for me, uh, in how I'm defining it now for myself, is really active in this more preventative state of seeing a problem and then trying to change it before it becomes too bad. So solution-focused? <laughs> Definitely solution-focused. Right, which I love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All about finding solutions, even if the solution is do nothing and let it be which yeah. is in, in itself quite challenging to accept. Uh, I mean, when you started talking about South Africa and removing your own bias, you know, I hear people talking about, well, we've got to get rid of bias and we've got to get rid of gender bias. And they're like, but you can't take no, away core values that have been passed down through generations of the generations. And sometimes it's as simple as understanding, well, this particular group has only been introduced to European written languages in the last, 100 or so years mm. so they've had all of that time for thinking and evolving over generation over generation passing down values and ideas from a completely other mindset and mm. system and they're mostly just coming to terms with the language itself never mind the nuances mm. of the language and it's something I came to understand being in Sweden Swedes speak perfect English, much the same as Germans do. And so you're always invited to engage with them in English. Well, I've been speaking English since before I could, was born almost because my mother's thoughts were in English. And you forget that actually they don't understand the nuance mm. of the language and how it's used by English people. And before you know it, a whole dispute arises just because this lack of understanding of these subtle nuances so it's, I totally uh, am in alignment with this idea we can't remove bias, but what we can do is, to a certain degree, be aware of it and then allow ourselves to engage with our awareness of our own bias and let that be the guide, mm. so to speak. And I think it fits a lot with what you do in your work, like the importance of self-awareness, yeah. because... Um, The moment you realize how your language impacts others, but also what kind of spaces and environments you create through the way you use language, 
And also kind of inviting you, though, to kind of educate yourself on how language can be used on you. So, for example, we did um, a gigantic study of how language was used by George W. Bush right. to get, you know, the Iraq war pretty much, yeah, yeah. not started, but use language in that way. And if you know what kind of tools and yeah, ways there are to use language that can influence how you perceive reality, then it's just uh, very interesting. It is. So born in Germany, and then you moved to Maui. Just tell me a little bit more. What was that experience like for you as a child? I think in two words it would be blissful and empowering. I was blissful because the setting in itself allows you to really flourish as a human being, I think. Um, just being in nature most of the time. So I have very little memories of just being in a house. I would always just be in some warm, well, it's very warm, so very little clothes. <laughs> and just jumping around in the garden, collecting some kind of berries or exploring the nature around. And um, I love the ocean. I still do. And just um, in the winter, you'd hear, hear the whales which is such a magnificent thing to witness. It's extraordinary. It's truly extraordinary. When you're just, uh, the moment you dive under, you hear these noises of humpback whales around you. And uh, empowering because I had a truly magnificent teacher in that time, extremely experienced old wise man. And uh, I was left-handed when I started going to school. And... Uh, through an interesting process, I was writing like Leonardo da Vinci, so from the left to the right side. And I did that for one and a half years almost, and he just let me do. And my parents were like, what are you, what's happening? You know, should we be worried? It's our first child. And he said, no, no, I'm doing it right. And she'll come around pretty much when she's ready. And um, so then in the second year, I started writing with my left hand, of course, in the right way then. And... Um, he somehow then also found out that maybe I'm a right-handed person, so then I switched. So um, that actually, I think, for me, has been also very empowering in a weird way to be ambidextrous because it shapes your way of thinking in very interesting ways, actually, in the long term of always thinking there is not just one right, but there is also left and right. <laughs> you can do them in the both at the same time. And you can write in with two hands, for example, at the same time. So, in essence, I would say that uh, blissful and empowering. I mean, just such a heartwarming story to hear that, one, you were supported in your difference. Mm -hmm. And you were allowed to just be and find your own way to it in your own time without... Uh, panic or fear or neurosis about where this might take you. <laughs> and this is just such a small thing, right? But uh, It's a pretty huge thing in a lot of ways when you think about writing. Well, from my perspective as a hypnotherapist, writing as an ideometer is the feedback loop between brain and hand. Mm. And uh, 
it's such a powerful early connection that if it's interrupted or distorted, we don't know quite what we're doing to people's minds. To be honest, one of the best moments of my life, this is almost uh, embarrassing to say, but was when I won a TEDx, do you know TED, TED Talks? Yeah. I was at a TEDx event and then there was an audience prize. Yeah. And so many amazing people got to do, you know, their skills, like speaking different languages that they came up by themselves and everything. Uh-huh. And I did this one skill of just writing with both hands at the same time. And I won the prize. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was just so pumped. Yeah. <laughs> I won my Star Wars, you know, sword. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, and it's wonderful timing, actually, because... Uh, I don't read the papers often, but there was just this story that caught my eye this morning, which was um, Alicia Keys playing two pianos at the same time, mm. one with one hand and one with the other. And I was, I just so kind of couldn't really quite get my head around the brilliance of it. So my brain sort of started to shut down a little. I was like, oh, God, it must be a tabloid story. So don't that. <laughs> and now you tell me this. And I'm like, oh, OK, wow. Okay, it's giving me an insight for a moment from a more personal perspective of the truth of that story and what an extraordinary gift to live with. Thank you. But uh, in essence, it ties back to, uh, I think, the setting that Maui at least gives Yeah. Uh, when you live there in that kind of uh, community, just really living there is that it just enables you to really... Mm, explore yourself and flourish in many, many different ways. And that's why also the people who are there are very interesting. And each one of them, I found at least, has such interesting stories, which is truly unique because this island is quite small. Mm. But of course, the diversity and the stories that just arise there. Mm. Well, I can imagine. And and your early life formative years being coloured by these unique and different stories. I mean, they are quite far away from Northern Europe Mm. and Northern European stories. Combined with this uh, ambidextrous, two-sided equality of yourself, I can only imagine what it must be like to open up your mind and have a look. (laughs) Increasingly ordered. (laughs) Sometimes not. (laughs) Yeah, but also it gives you, it's very liberating in terms of the way you think and the way you see things. Well, in some ways I was considered to be rather an odd child and um, I just got used to being called an odd person. And I didn't really think about it until, you know, people would say, you just don't really think like anybody else. And it was like, oh, is that a bad thing? But nobody thinks like anybody else. But then there are these kind of even then exceptions further to that rule. And they're neither good or bad, but you come perfectly designed to do whatever it is that you're going to do, your purpose or what it is you are going to be part of in life. So I can see how that would... See, and... For me, it's a big question of mindset. So if you think of odd, then you're already kind of saying anything that's different is negative, right? And for me, diversity is always just a big blessing, even in the teams I'm in, in any work setting, in any space. I always try to not surround myself with people who are only like me. Well, exactly. And, um, yeah. Well, that would, I think, be rather stifling. (laughs) <laughs> because you know it's just boring and then it is boring and uh it stops life 
I think, because life exists because of all of the contrasts that support it. You know, you've got to have an out-breath as well as the in-breath for life. There has to be an exchange of oxygen and some other thing. Everything is about an exchange of difference for life to continue. So in a vacuum or an echo chamber of sameness, life stops. It becomes stagnant or stuck and that's not particularly healthy or conducive to growth or change. Yeah, I was just thinking about why do people like to hang out with, you know, the more people who are like them. And usually it's because, of course, it uh, it's easier and maybe they think it's more harmonious in a way. But actually, I don't know, probably not always. There are lots of studies to suggest that actually they don't. It's just that going back to this thing about having choice, making life easier and simpler, we have become kind of lazy, I think, in a certain way, that the easy option, the safe option, is where we stop. You know, it's similarly, we have a commonality in our culture of blame. Something outside of myself is the reason why my life is not working. There's not much encouragement to say, actually, what's going on with you that's making the external appear to be the cause of the difficulty that you're experiencing? Where, where do we take responsibility for that part? But again, that's just another version of different. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting conversation because it's like one of those things you keep unfolding mm. and unfolding and unfolding. And as much as there needs to be people who enjoy sameness, there needs to be people who enjoy difference. And the two bump along with side by side. And to know when each one is better. Yeah. Well, actually not better, but, you know, there are moments when you prefer one and when one is maybe more adequate for you and yourself. Yeah, like there are the people who went to look for dragons and the people who stayed home <laughs> and they both have value. Gone all be out looking for dragons. So how long did you spend living in Maui? I think all together it was like seven and a half years. Right. So you returned to Germany after that? Yeah, we lived uh, at the Chiemsee Bavarian Sea in Bavaria, Germany, because honestly, once you've lived in a place which has mountains and ocean, yeah, of course, you try to find mountains and mountains and ocean again. <laughs> and uh, we were blessed that we could move down to uh, Bavaria. It is a beautiful part of Germany. Truly astounding nature, yeah. And so you found the similarity geographically or in the lay of the land. How about the change in culture? How was that at that age? I think it's, uh, it also depends on who you ask. But for me, um, of course, there is a difference. I mean, there's definitely uh, the German culture is very different than the, let's say, Maui uh, local culture. I personally also enjoyed my time incredibly down in uh, Bavaria, mm. but um, the local Bavarian culture is very, very interesting. Yeah. It's not Oktoberfest, but it's uh, very traditional and, let's say, mm, exclusive in the way that you were not always seen as an ohana, an extended part of your family, just by moving there. It's more like, oh, this is our land. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've met a few Bavarians in my time and they're kind of a, almost a distinct tribe. Yes, Mia Zan Mia. Yeah. <laughs> Say again? Mia Zan Mia. It means we are we, pretty much. 
Fascinating. Which is which, what tribes do mm. all say in their own kind of language. Aha, uh-huh. so this wonderful contrast. And after that, you say you went to study in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Also a very different culture. Of yes. course, Amsterdam is a beautiful city. Uh, if you've ever been, um, lots of water as well, boats everywhere, incredibly diverse and uh, colorful in many ways. Yeah. Fantastic. And you were studying there for three years and now you are in London. Yeah, what a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> and London seems to be the kind of um, the Brazil of yes. Europe. What a melting pot of cultures and everything. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. What do you enjoy most about it in uh, terms of that <laughs> melting pot? I have to be honest, I'm spending pretty much 12 hours a day at the university. So um, that is my life. Uh, but I really appreciate the diversity of the people here. And the people I get to interact with are so exceptional Um, both in terms of intellect, but also the stories that they have. And just when you have these kind of people around you, which I guess a cosmopolitan city invites, your day is shaped in very interesting ways, right? Because the conversations you just have and the stories they share about their countries and what's going on with their families. And you're like, oh, ooh, yeah, it just really doesn't look that great in Colombia right now. And oh, goodness, what's happening in Japan? And uh, yeah. Wonderful. So how much longer do you have left with your studies? Yeah, well, <laughs> officially until September. Okay. And mm. then after that, what can we expect to see from you? Hopefully only good things. I hope so too, <laughs> and I'm sure we will. It will be wonderful to revisit and see how your studies take you out into the world with education and healthcare. I um, imagine you already have some visions in your mind of what you're going to create or invite into your sphere, into your world, wherever you may find yourself. And we look forward to hearing more about that from you, Francesca, in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a true pleasure. And thank you so much for being here. It's been really, really wonderful to have this conversation with you and go to places that I never even imagined that we might go to. I've been thrilled and honored to meet you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Ourselves. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it and sharing it with you. Please feel free to leave feedback and let us know what you think or share with us some of the conversations you are having with each other. Subscribe so that you can be first in line for the next episode with our next amazing woman. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.